Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A fire breaks out at a federal facility processing enriched uranium. The National Security Complex in Tennessee was the site of the Manhattan Project. Former President Trump is in Ohio today to visit East Palestine, where cleanup is underway after the chemical spill that left the small town on edge. Find out what Trump had to say and how Biden is responding. And the president is in Poland, vowing to bolster NATO as Putin boasts closer ties with Beijing during talks with China's top diplomat. We have the analysis. Pressure increases for Congress and the Biden administration to act quickly on the debt ceiling. A new report says the U.S. is expected to default on its debt by the summer. And over to tech companies. The Supreme Court heard its second case in two days on whether social media companies should be liable for the acts of third parties. The decision could be a game changer. A fire broke out this morning at a federal complex in Tennessee that processes uranium. Officials said there were no injuries. The Y-12 National Security Complex in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, confirmed that a fire broke out in one of the production buildings shortly after 9 a.m., and it involved uranium. Emergency services responded to the incident, and around 200 employees evacuated from the building, with more leaving from nearby buildings. The federal facility was the site of the Manhattan Project during World War II, where researchers developed the first nuclear bomb. A new uranium processing facility has already been under construction to replace the one where the fire broke out. Workers returned to normal operations by the afternoon, and officials said there are no reports of contamination or radiation. And former President Trump is in Ohio today, visiting the town that's still on edge after the train derailment that has left some residents sick. NTD's Melina Weiskopf has the details. Residents welcoming former President Trump to the small town of East Palestine, the area where a train carrying toxic chemicals derailed earlier this month. The visit an opportunity for Trump to reprise his role as president when he would often survey disaster damage. Trump visited Little Beaver Creek to inspect environmental damage, where he was briefed by newly elected Senator J.D. Vance, East Palestine Mayor Trent Conaway, and other state and local leaders. To show our love and support for our fellow Americans and this hour of need, and that's what it is. It was an hour of need, but they've done some incredible work in a very short period of time, and they're getting a lot of credit for it, and they have to be Three weeks after the derailment, the smell of chemicals is mostly gone, but some residents close to the tracks say there's still an odor inside their homes. There's growing frustration among residents and local leaders about the federal government's response to their safety concerns after the derailment, which led to evacuations and fears of contamination of the community's air and drinking water. During the visit, Trump donated cleaning supplies and bottled water. Here's his message to the Biden administration. Get over here. Why do you think they waited, Donald, uh, Mr. Trump? Do you think it had to do with they the fact that me when they I waited came for you? Thank you for coming, Mr. Trump. Thank you, sir. When I came, everybody decided to come, right? You know that. Nice to see you. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg is now set to travel to East Palestine on Thursday. The administration defending the timing in a statement, saying that the secretary wanted to go when it is appropriate and wouldn't detract from the emergency response efforts.
And some administration officials have dismissed Trump's visit today as simply a political opportunity. President Biden has not yet visited the city, although yesterday he did hold phone calls with officials from both Ohio and Pennsylvania. Biden said that call was meant to reaffirm his commitment to making sure that those officials and residents have everything that they need. On the other hand, Trump has accused Biden of walking away from residents in the deep red state. This trip by the former president and the contrast that Trump is trying to draw does sort of show a start of what could be a replay of a showdown between Trump and Biden for the 2024 presidential race. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. And the Environmental Protection Agency is now warning Norfolk Southern of heavy consequences if it falls short in cleaning up the damage. At any moment, if we have to step in because they refuse to do anything, we will do the cleaning up ourselves. We can fine them up to $70,000 a day. And when we recoup our total cost, we can charge them three times the amount of the cost of the federal government. That is what the law provides for me. The EPA's new legally binding order is set to take effect Thursday. EPA Administrator Michael Reagan said it, quote, will ensure that Norfolk Southern pays for the mess that they've created. Norfolk Southern has committed millions of dollars worth of financial assistance to East Palestine. That includes $3.4 million in direct financial assistance to families and a $1 million community assistance fund. And President Biden wrapped up his Poland trip with a pledge to bolster NATO. Yet Russia is highlighting deepened ties with China in a meeting between Putin and Beijing's top diplomat. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. Before concluding a momentous three-day trip to Ukraine and Poland, President Biden meets with leaders of countries along NATO's eastern flank and telling them they have the U.S.'s full support if any of them becomes a target of Russia. As NATO's eastern flank, you're on the front lines of our collective defense. We will defend literally every inch of NATO. The meeting in Poland took place among leaders of the Bucharest Nine, which includes countries like Bulgaria, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, all of which getting increasingly wary of Russia's aggression. And you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. And Biden on Wednesday responded to Russia's pulling back from the New START nuclear arms reduction treaty. Here's what he said. I don't have time. You don't have time? No. No, I have time. Big mistake. Meanwhile, Moscow is celebrating deepened ties with Beijing. China's top diplomat met with Putin at the Kremlin on Wednesday, telling the Russian leader that China's relationship with Russia stays strong despite international pressure. China-Russia relations have withstood the test of the international situation and remained mature, tenacious and stable as a mountain. And Putin talked of reaching new milestones in Russia-China relations as he said he was looking forward to Xi Jinping's visit to Moscow this spring. Reporting from the White House, Iris Tao, NTD News. And after meeting with China's top diplomat in Moscow today, Russian President Vladimir Putin says Russian-Chinese relations are proceeding as planned. Earlier today, I spoke with a formidable expert on China, Bradley Thayer. He's a founding member of the Committee on the Present Danger China and co-author of the book Understanding the China Threat. 
He says a strengthening Russia-China bond is a cause of great concern. Bradley Thayer, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be with you. Now, Putin met with a top Chinese diplomat today. Both reaffirmed their country's close ties and pushed for multipolar leadership in international affairs as tensions with the U.S. continue to rise. What concerns you about this China-Russia partnership? Well, what concerns me about it is, first, that it's a major change in the balance of power. If China and Russia were actually to tangibly align with one another, uh, that's uh, the most formidable threat that the United States has faced in a very, very long time, if not ever. It's hard enough to deal with China alone, and that should consume all of our attention. To deal with China and Russia uh, is something which um, would stress uh, even America's foremost strategist, as we had at the beginning of the Cold War with the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. So it's a cause of great concern, uh, and let us hope that it does not come to pass. Putin also talked about reaching new milestones with China in areas like bilateral trade. And we also have the U.S. saying China might supply weapons to Russia. Considering that sanctions have been an important tool of the West in punishing its adversaries, does that set off any alarm bells for you? Well, it does. Uh, we should expect that China has been supplying Russia with not only uh, a market for Russian energy, uh, which has helped Putin in his difficulties with uh, uh, that have arisen as a result of sanctions and the war uh, in Ukraine, but we should also expect that China has sent military aid covertly uh, to Moscow. Uh, China wants to fight to the last Russian. Uh, because China recognizes that this war is occupying, it is really the E-Day fix of the American foreign policy establishment. And so uh, Xi Jinping is keeping America focused on a sideshow uh, while he's moving very actively to pressure Taiwan and to advance China's interests globally, uh, but specifically in the Indo-Pacific, East China Sea and South China Sea. Putin is the junior partner. He's the tool of Xi Jinping. And he's serving his role as a useful idiot uh, for Xi Jinping uh, so that China can advance his interests. Sadly, the American foreign policy establishment is, seems to be too willing to go along with that, again, with that focus on Ukraine, rather than the focus on America's global uh, national security interest. And there we recognize, of course, Ukraine plays a small part uh, in a larger panoply of national security interests. The U.S.'s Navy Secretary, Carlos del Toro, said yesterday that the U.S. can't keep up with China's warship building program. How important do you think it will be to have a comparably strong Navy force, for example, if Beijing tries to invade Taiwan? It, it's supremely important. And the Secretary of the Navy, as well as the Chief of Naval Operations, as well as former admirals, Admiral Davidson, for example, Admiral Richards, uh, the former commander of United States Strategic Command, have all stressed that China is racing for superiority uh, in conventional weapons as well as in nuclear weapons. So the Secretary of the Navy is right to call attention to the fact that the U.S. Navy is not the size that it should be 
to deal with the conventional deterrent the United States has to have in place to ensure that China does not aggress against Taiwan or against U.S. allies, Japan, the Philippines, Australia, or a major partner like India. Uh, deterrence is really going to depend upon the United States' ability to ensure that China sees any attack against Taiwan or against U.S. interests as not being worth the cost of that aggression. Sadly, the U.S. conventional deterrent posture in the Indo-Pacific doesn't lend itself to that. Uh, and you may have seen reports, for example, that um, despite promises, the Biden administration still has not delivered adequate number of Harpoon anti-ship missiles to Taiwan. Uh, that Taiwanese are still waiting uh, for those very important conventional weapon systems to be delivered. So what the United States should be doing is have a maximally important, uh, they have a large number of conventional weapons based on Taiwan as well as within theater, so that the Chinese recognize any effort that they take to aggress will be defeated. We're not there yet. We've got a long way to go. So the Secretary of the Navy is stating the obvious. Uh, we're not ready for high-intensity warfare, and we don't have the tools in place for a conventional deterrent against Chinese aggression. You've pointed to many things that the individual concerned American citizen could do to weaken the Chinese Communist Party and expel its influence. What are some of those, and, and also what should the U.S. government do at this point in time? Well, the answers are, in two words, a lot. Uh, what U.S. citizens should do are to get rid of all Chinese apps on their phones, right? Never put a Chinese app on the phone. Stop investing in China and demand that your retirement firms, uh, your retirement accounts don't invest in China either. We know that Larry F uh, Fink's BlackRock allows heavily, heavily uh, the, his retirement uh, accounts to invest in China firms owned by the Chinese Communist Party directly or by the People's Liberation Army. So don't allow your retirement to go to fund the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese military. For the U.S. government, there's everything to do in terms of preparing for high-intensity warfare uh, against, uh, against China, uh, to recognize that in diplomacy, there's so much to be done to combat Chinese uh, dominance in technology to ensure that the United States still has 5G and 6G dominance, as well as an artificial intelligence in ideology to compete with China so that the Chinese do not get to set the rules of the road for the 21st century, but those standards, norms, and principles are still going to be defined by the ones that served us so well in the 20th century and into the 21st uh, century. Fundamentally, the U.S. government and the American people and their allies have to see China as an enemy, an enemy that it truly is, and act accordingly. And sadly, despite important steps in that direction, we still have a long road uh, to travel. Bradley Thayer, founding member of the Committee on Present Danger, China, and co-author of Understanding the China Threat. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. There's ever-growing urgency to deal with the national debt. The U.S. will likely start to default on its debt over the summer or in the early fall. That is, if Congress doesn't address the debt ceiling before then. 
This is according to an analysis from the Bipartisan Policy Center today. The Congressional Budget Office also released its own forecast last week. It said the default could take place between July and September. Goldman Sachs expects the default to take place in early to mid-August. Last month, the Treasury Department announced that the nation had hit the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling. The projections give lawmakers and the Biden administration a sense of when they must reach an agreement on resolving the borrowing limit to avoid a catastrophic default. And the Supreme Court heard a second case today on the role of social media platforms in the acts of terrorist groups. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. In 2017, 39 people were killed and 79 wounded in an Islamist terrorist attack in Turkey, including Jordanian citizen Noras Alasa, who was celebrating the new year with his wife. His relatives, all U.S. nationals, later sued Google, Twitter and Facebook, alleging they were indirectly responsible for the attack. Their lawsuit claims the platform serviced Islamic State accounts as far back as 2010, enabling the growth of the terrorist group. Therefore, the tech giants should be held liable under the Anti-Terrorism Act for aiding the Islamic State. A Ninth Circuit court allowed the case to go forward. On Wednesday, the tech companies asked the Supreme Court to overturn the lower court's ruling. Twitter's attorney, Seth Waxman, argued that his client couldn't be held liable because the company didn't knowingly assist in the terrorist act. Justice Sonia Sotomayor said she was confused. I thought you needed a direct connection between the assistance given and the actual act. So I came away from your brief thinking that what you were arguing was that they had to provide something specifically for this bombing. Waxman said Twitter didn't provide substantial assistance to the act of terrorism that ultimately injured the plaintiff. He said there's a gulf between knowing about the specific act and Twitter knowing it provides services to a terrorist group. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson asked Waxman for more details. Yes, and it's the gulf I'm trying to explore. So right. what, I, I want to chart it. What do you have to know in three that is sufficient under your view? Waxman explained that Twitter had to know it was substantially assisting some act of terrorism, but Jackson remained confused. I don't know that I see that clearly the distinction, but the let me... The Biden administration joined the case as an interested party. The Department of Justice condemned the terrorist act that killed Alasa, but said this about his family's claim. We submit, however, that the allegations in this complaint do not state a claim that the defendants aided and abetted that is, that they assumed a culpable role in the commission of that murder. The court heard a similar case on Tuesday and is expected to rule on the cases by early summer. Arlene Richards, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a powerful winter storm hitting a vast swath of the U.S. Over 60 million Americans are under winter weather alerts. And in F1 racing, the charred wreckage and unreleased footage of one of the worst crashes in Grand Prix history will finally be made viewable to the public. NTD's Dave Martin has that story. That and more coming up.
powerful winter storm is hitting millions of Americans from coast to coast. More than two dozen states are under winter weather alerts as the storm brings heavy snow, strong winds and ice today. In California, over 100,000 households lost power due to strong winds from the powerful storm. Nationwide, more than 1,300 flights were canceled today due to the storm. More than 65 million people across 29 states from as far west as California to Minnesota through Maine are under winter weather alerts. This includes over 20 million people under winter storm warnings. The upper Midwest is expected to bear the brunt of the storm in terms of snowfall. Over the next three days, the Twin Cities region and Minnesota could potentially get the most snow in 30 years. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Thank you, Steph. The public will soon be able to see the charred wreckage of a dramatic Formula One crash. Two years ago, Formula One race car driver Romain Grosjean miraculously walked away from a fiery scene that saw him trapped inside his car for 28 grueling seconds. Today, an exhibit in Madrid announced plans to display the debris. The crash happened on the very first lap of the Bahrain Grand Prix in November of 2020. Grosjean's car bumped into another car and then careened off the track, hitting a barrier at speeds upwards of 120 miles an hour. The car split upon impact and exploded into flames while carrying a full tank of gas. With fire all around him, Grosjean had to break his headrest with his helmet and free his foot from his shoe, which was stuck in the wreckage. Shockingly, he walked away from the scene, suffering only burns to his hands and ankles. The exhibit, meanwhile, will be entitled Survival and will feature previously unreleased footage of the crash. And in tennis news, world number one Novak Djokovic says he's applied for special permission to enter the United States and play in a pair of upcoming tournaments next month. Djokovic, who is unvaccinated, was unable to travel to the U.S. last year and missed three tournaments, including the U.S. Open, an event he's won three times. The Biden administration has announced plans to lift the COVID emergency declarations, which would also lift the foreign air travelers vaccine requirement, but that's not scheduled to happen until May 11. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, no NBA games again, but in the college game, five ranked teams are in action, including the top two, as number one Houston hosts Tulane, while second ranked Alabama plays at South Carolina. And finally, for you hockey fans, a triple header tonight featuring the first place Dallas Stars, who've actually lost four games in a row, looking to break that streak against the last place Chicago Blackhawks. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And finally, Shen Yun, the world's premier classical Chinese dance and music company, just wrapped up its performances in Boise, Idaho. Here's what theatergoers had to say. Beautiful. Yeah, it's mesmerizing, I think, is the word that I'd be looking for. Audience members shared their thoughts after seeing Shen Yun Performing Arts in Boise, Idaho on February 18 and 19. It's incredible. Um, they're very athletic and uh, definitely have put a lot of time and effort into uh, putting the performance together so that it can come off flawlessly like it did. I think they're nailing it 100%. It's been fascinating to watch them talk about how some of these dances go back 5,000 years, to think that these were traditional Chinese dances that their ancestors were performing thousands of years ago, and then watch them perform that today is absolutely amazing. It stirred me very deeply. It, it captured me down to my soul. 
in, in so many ways. The, just the, the, the power and the flow and the movement back and forth and, and the powerful story that was being told in each one of the segments. At the Morrison Center for the Performing Arts, New York-based Shen Yun shows China before communism. Genuine traditional Chinese culture drew inspiration from the divine, which audience members identified with. It was fascinating to watch them weave and how important faith is as a part of their culture. Obviously, the Chinese have a uh, understanding of afterlife and that there's consequences, and so I, we could identify with that. I think that the piece where the cell phones were out was a very powerful, um, powerful signal and, and it caused people to stop and think because you could see yourself in that very piece. You could see the detachment we have from the divine through our own devices and all of the, the uh, distractions that are, exist in our modern world. Among the dance stories, instrument solos, and vocal pieces, patrons reflect on what they took away from the performance. Part of the song was that she's traveling along in a canoe, and life is good, and then uh, dark times come, and, and that light, that, uh, that goodness will save you in dark times. Everybody should see this production. It's one of the best, and every year it keeps getting better. And who does the wardrobe? Because they're magnificent too, by the way. It's beautiful. NCD News, Boise, Idaho. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.